Our next reading is from 2 Samuel, and chapter 7. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, beginning at verse 18. Okay, 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Beginning at verse 18. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, O Lord God, thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. Wherefore, thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever, and thou, Lord, art become their God. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as thou hast said. And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee a house. Therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. And now, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Therefore, now, let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it, and with thy blessing, let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. Amen. Amen. <coughs> We're looking at someone else's prayer this evening. I propose that we let this prayer remind us about God, what he's like uh, the things he does, and in particularly to show us what type of God it is that we approach. Now the background to this prayer is that David uh, decided that it's not right that God should live in a, you know, glorified tent, a marquee. <coughs> He's going to build him a proper house, and David is convinced that he was the man for the job. Now, through the prophet Nathan, 
which you can read in the previous chapter. Through the prophet Nathan, God instructs David he won't be building a new house or anything else. But God does make some precious promises to David. And that act of kindness by God moves David to pray this prayer. This is a fairly simple prayer. Um, it might seem there's not much in there, but there is plenty in there for the Bible student to think about. The approach to this I've decided on is to draw something out of each verse. That is to take one thing from each verse about God. If you count it, that makes it a 12-point sermon. 12 points. So make yourselves comfortable. <laughs> Maybe some time. Now that approach in my might, might, it might seem a little bit arbitrary as a way to approach the passage. Well, what, what I'm trying to do tonight, folks, is to present to you a progression of thought. A progression. And that's why I gave this the title, uh, David's Ladder. It reminded me of a, a sort of an ascent uh, as David went through this prayer. And so I hope to take you um, with me. Uh, as we as we see this train of thought, so firstly in verse uh, we started in verse eighteen, and it says in there David says, uh, "Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that Thou hast brought me hitherto?" So the first thing we see is here is a, is a God who dispenses good things. Who am I, says David, that you do all this stuff for me? He's acknowledging that God has done things for him, quite <coughs> remarkable things. If you are later to read the section, uh, the chapter, well, the, the beginning part of chapter 7, you will see that God rehearses some of the things that he's done for David. So, you know, he took David from this lowly position and made him the king over Israel itself. He'd been with David constantly, never leaving his side. He'd driven out all of David's enemies from the land. And he promised to give David a, a reputation and a preservation of his family line. If you're converted, all the days you and I lived before our conversion, God was carefully managing our lives. And even back then, he was giving us good things. And then, when that day came, when he gave us that greatest of gifts, which is repentance and faith. Since then, we've had that great gift. And since then, we've continued daily to receive gift after gift. Now, of the things that God gives us, there are those that we remain blind to, and there are those that we see. And I suspect that if we were more on God's wavelength, then we'd be able to see all, all of his mercies to us. 
of those that we are aware of, and sometimes we even thank God for them, how quickly we forget them. If we could better see God's hand in our lives, and if we really treasured the memories of his giving to us, could we not all write a book? Several books? Let's have a look at verse 19. Verse 19, it says, And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, a small thing. So there we see a God who gives those things generously. Now David had taken stock of the type, some of the things that God had done for him up to that point in his life. And now he realises that all that was a small thing for God. God is so powerful that it was not difficult for him. God himself asks the prophet Jeremiah the rhetorical question. Is there anything too hard for me? But David here wasn't only acknowledging what God had done for him, you know, was, was easy. He, he's also implying there that God must therefore have the capacity to do so much more. He was able to give so much more. Now when God gives to us, his supplies never run out. No matter how generously God gives those warehouses of his graces do not run low. He is able to give and give and give without end. And that's exactly what he will do in the world to come. All those who belong to him, all those who put their faith in Christ, will be raised to a life characterised by the endless giving of God. Verse 20. And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, O Lord God, knowest thy servant. <coughs> we see then that this God who gives, gives appropriately because he knows us. He knows our needs. He meets our material needs, knowing all we need to get through this life. He supplies for you your spiritual needs also, so that you, uh, it's because he knows all the things that you will need to serve God in this world. David knew that. David knew about God knowing his need, but he goes further. He confesses in his verse that God knew him. Not just his need, God knew David inside out. You might remember the story when, um, when God was uh, choosing David to be the king. And uh, Samuel the prophet went to see uh, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And Jesse brought out all the, all the lads in the family and, uh, you know, to, to show Samuel and the first guy stepped up and he was obviously a you know a charismatic looking guy and Samuel was impressed and he said this is definitely the one God's going to choose 
what happened? Um, maybe he thought, you know, it was like Saul, you know, tall, dark and handsome. That's what Samuel thought. And what happened? Well, the Lord spoke. The Lord spoke to Samuel and said, Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. He sees men how they are. I mean, we too make judgments about uh, people largely based on outward stuff, don't we? We, we, make, we make quick judgments, people's faces, you know, the, the, the clothes, maybe how they speak, all kinds of things. Um, people uh, conducting job interviews, make assessments about people instantly, just on, just on the outward appearance. People in coffee shops sit and people watch and do the same thing. And I believe the Lord's people do it. We make, we make judgments that are too quick. But even if we make very good judgments, our assessments can never be complete. And it's not the case with God. That is not the case. Remember, the Lord seeth not as man seeth. The Lord sees everything that you and I see. But he also... He also can hear what they're thinking as well. The Lord can read our motives as readily as if they were printed in a book. He knows us perfectly. What does that mean for us? It means a lot more than God knows what we need. It means he reads us at all times. And that includes... When we come tonight to worship him. So we worship him this evening and he knows us and he's, he has this piercing vision. And if you are aware of that friends, it should provoke you and me to, to really refocus our hearts and minds on uh, godly worship. In all the ways that we worship God, our hearts need to be right worship must be done out of a genuine desire to give him the glory that's due to him. And it also must be done in love towards God. Let's move on to verse 21. For thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all these things. So here we see that this God who gives does so heartily. Our God is not an impersonal force. When he did good for David, it wasn't done without feeling. He, God delighted to do good to his servant. He did it with true, big-hearted love. If you've ever taken an interest in their theology and maybe read some books... You may be aware there have been debates about this, about the, the nature of God for some time. Some people have wrestled with this and concluded that God is so much higher than us. We cannot think of him having emotions like us. They argue that God is unchanging and not to be thought of as lurching from one emotion to the other. Now... God certainly is higher than us. He is transcendent. And this means so much about God is beyond our comprehension. And in this life, 
that's the way it's going to be. And this, I believe, is one of those matters that we can never get to the bottom of. I don't fully know and cannot tell you what it means for God to love and hate. I think of those as sort of fickle emotions. At least that's how we express them. I do know this one thing. That in his wisdom, God has chosen to describe himself as a God who experiences emotions. Now I'm convinced he does experience these things, but on a level that we cannot imagine. The bottom line is this. We can confidently embrace the reality of God's love towards us. So when God does things, when he does things for us, it's done lovingly. He does it with his whole heart. I think it's quite humbling to think that, uh, think about God giving to an ungrateful and wretched bunch of people like us. <coughs> how, could, how could that possibly make God happy? But he tells us it does. Let's get on to verse 22. <coughs> Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee. So we see here that this God who gives so lovingly has no equal. This God, our God, is unique. There are things which are called gods, but they're not gods at all. In Isaiah, I think it's... Uh, Chapter 43 or somewhere like that. In Isaiah God says, um, Besides me, is there any real God? I don't know of any. His point is, he knows everything. And he knows, of course, there is no other God. And David knew this, which is why he was praying to God and not to some stupid uh, statue. I thought it was quite amusing how the New Age uh, types, they talk about their God, Mother Nature. And it's interesting because they talk about her as wise, powerful, having great creative ability. And they speak of her similarly to how we speak about God. So it looks to me is they're trying to describe the great works of God while persuading themselves there is no God. They also talk about gifts we receive from Mother Nature. Yet, those of us who see the authority of the Word of God, well, we understand there is but one God. And every good gift and every perfect gift is from Him. Now, we quite rightly thank people for stuff. We, we do, don't we? I thanked Betty, for this pile of food I had this afternoon. And I meant it. She made it. But we have to always remember that behind this we have a belief that ultimately the real source of that gift was God. Somewhere around the same place in Isaiah, um, God says... There was no God formed before him, neither shall there be after him. He says, I, even I am the Lord, and beside me 
there is no saviour. So in the matter of the greatest gift of all, we again confess that it's found only in the God of the Bible. God is the saviour, and to look anywhere else is a pointless and dangerous exercise. Let's have a look at verse 23. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself? And further on, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. So we see that this also, that this one true God that we are speaking about delivers his people. He really delivers them. I'm sure you'll recall in the Bible those numerous occasions where God uh, reminds the Hebrews how he delivered them from <coughs> Egypt with a mighty hand. And David here is, if you like, reminding God uh, of that great deliverance as a way to, to praise him. One of the reasons God sends trouble into the lives of his people, the ones he loves, is to then rescue them. God brought about the enslavement of the Hebrews. He did that so that in delivering them, he could then display his great love to his people and display his great power to the rest of the world. And when we think about those dramatic events in the Bible, we can see something about how God works in us, those who belong to Christ, because he dragged them out of Egypt in the same way as he drags us out of our lives of sin. He uh, gradually drove out their enemies, just as he gradually uh, drives out sin from our lives. Let's have a look then at the next thing in verse 24. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever. Thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel. So we see now that we have a God who establishes those people who he delivers. God did not only deliver the Hebrews, he established them. He made himself their God and he cemented that relationship with great covenant promises. As long as the Hebrews remained faithful to God, he'd make them secure in the promised land. They'd not only have a great place to live, but God would keep them safe from their enemies. As long as they obeyed him, God kept them planted in the land. It didn't last long. It didn't last long. Rebellion led to God's rebuke. Their refusal to listen to those rebukes through the prophets led to God raising up armies of men to do his bidding. 
and invade the promised land. And on numerous occasions, this happened and uh, many people were taken captive and carried off to foreign lands. Some of them returned and, you know, tried to regroup and rebuild. But it was a, a poor shadow of what it should have been and it was doomed to fail. By the time the word became flesh, Jesus found himself confronted with a religious edifice that was saturated with hypocrisy and wickedness. Not only, not only did Jesus tell them about this new kingdom that he was in the process of setting up, he said that this would involve the overturning of their whole world, including the complete destruction of that place which was the centre of their universe, the temple. I know the creation of this modern state of Israel has been lauded and celebrated. As far as I can see, it is a damp squib in terms of fulfilment of Bible prophecy. That country is full of godless people. It is run by godless people. Generations of Jews have died and continue to die in their sins and they will not get a second chance. Where they happen to live on this earth will count for nothing when it comes to their judgment. Let's have a look at verse 25, see where we're going. It says there, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever. Well, so we see here a God who establishes us, us. David knew that God not only dealt with the nation of Israel as a whole, his care was directed to individual <coughs> tribes and families and even individuals. But I just said national Israel was, was finished. God would never again show special favour to one nation. If, if now they were to build a brand new temple and make a replica of the Ark of the Covenant, God's not going to visit that. They could slaughter thousands of animals. God would never accept that. If you trust in Jesus, friend, tonight, then you belong to the true Israel of God. You are the real children of promise. You are the real sons of Abraham. You have had your hearts circumcised. That is, you've had a work of the Holy Spirit applied to them. And it's within the gospel that you believed that you find the greatest fulfilment of all Old Testament prophecy. And he'll keep you secured. He'll keep you established in his kingdom forever. You are in his kingdom now and you will remain in it forever. And just as God dealt with Israel as a whole and the people individually, so it is with his worldwide spiritual Israel. He, de he deals with the worldwide congregation of Jesus. I mean, it says um, Jesus... Um, 
that he died for the church. It says he gave himself for it. It says in our Bibles. But he also cares for his congregations. He cares for this congregation. He really does. And if you belong to Christ, he cares for you individually. And he's established you forever in his kingdom. Let's have a look at verse 26. We're nearly there, folks. Verse 26. It says, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. He's over Israel. So we see that this God who establishes us also rules sovereignly over us. Here it says he was their God. He ruled over them in love and justice. It was an encouragement to King David to know this because it wasn't enough to know a God who could deliver his people. It wasn't even enough to know that that God would then plant them securely in the land. David wanted God to rule over them. Normally, uh, kings want to rule completely. I mean, when Jesus came into this world, we find Herod, well, he was uh, petrified at uh, this uh, news. Now, a noble king would be glad. A noble king would be glad if someone else came on the scene who could rule the people better than they could. <laughs> but we, don't, we find leaders are not like that. Herod, for example, preferred to commit an act of genocide if that's the correct word, mass murder, against all the young people in the region, just to prevent any competition arising. People, friends, love to have power, and they will do anything to hang on to it. David, now, was a far better king than Herod, despite committing some terrible sins. On the whole, there was something about David, which reflected the character of God more than any other king. And he was the king. But he was happy to know that even his rule was lower than God's. He understood his place. He ruled the kingdom, okay? He certainly did. But he gladly accepted his accountability before God, the king of the whole world. That should be a great comfort to you and I, friends. A great comfort to know that God is actively governing this world of ours and that all his purposes will come to pass. Verse 27. Thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee a house. So we see then that this God who becomes our God makes great and precious promises to us. Great and precious promises. This promise was specific to David. God uh, continued, God said he was continued to um, uh, protect uh, David's family line and, and preserve that. But just think for a second, friends, on the greater promises made to you, made to me. The greater promises contained in the gospel. Here's a few from Jesus, just a handful from Jesus himself to make this point. He says, 
I will give you rest. I will make you fishes of men. I will build my church. I will not leave you comfortless. I will pray to the Father for you. I will see you again. Our God does not rule as a despot. He is a king who has more care for his subjects than any earthly king ever could. And one of the ways he shows this care is through making these outrageously big promises. You'll note that in this prayer, David was in effect. He was asking God here to do something. God had already said he'd do. I think David, like us, he didn't know the right thing to pray all the time. He wasn't sure what to pray. But here he has no doubt. And it's because God made the promise to him, David was fully confident in asking God to fulfil it. If you have difficulty, friends, knowing uh, what to ask of God, well, here's an answer. Find for yourself promises which apply to you. For example, God promises to increase the Holy Spirit's influence on your life if you ask him. So you can confidently ask for the Spirit. Confident he'll answer you. Let's have a look at verse 28. O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words be true. Thy words be true. God's words are true, David says. Again, what use is a God who makes giant and precious promises if we didn't know he was a God of all truth. What use is that? The Bible assures us God cannot lie. Now, now note this. It's not that God has the power to lie, but chooses not to. We say that he cannot lie because it would contradict his own nature to do this. Fools say that that's a sign of weakness. But we know that God's inability to lie glorifies him and it's evidence of his infinite goodness. David had previously said, you know, his confidence in prayer was based on this thing, his hope, his hope for an answered prayer was not only because a promise had been made by God, but he also knew God could not lie. Brethren, we hold in our hands here the, the, the greatest expression of God's truth, the Bible. And if you want to hear God's truth, read the thing. If you want to hear God's truth, listen to those preachers who faithfully expound what it says. I have Pentecostal friends. I know some of you have. Some of them are more extreme than others. And I've heard all kinds of strangeness from them. 
Um, they, they, they often claim to have received, you know, some special message directly from God. And so in as polite a way as I can, I convey to those people that I think they're deluded. That's what I do. So if you meet, if you meet a Christian who says they've just been to the supermarket and they met Jesus and had a nice chat. And uh, they received a message from Jesus and they want to share that with you. I'm saying to you, please, please ignore them. Promise me you will, you will ignore that. God would have us, friends, be Bible believers, Bible hearers, and Bible students. That's where it's all found. Well, verse 29, it's the last verse. Verse 29 says, Let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever. Forever before thee. For thou, O Lord, hast spoken it. Thou, O Lord, hast spoken it. And so finally, we see a God who is faithful. This, friends, is the logical conclusion of what we just said. God makes promises. Because of his absolute truthfulness, his promises cannot be faulty. They must come to pass. He will do as he's promised. And that is his faithfulness. We serve a God who can be trusted to do what he said. The same cannot be said for any sinful person that you might know, who you think is completely trustworthy. They're not completely trustworthy. But God on the other hand, God, if you trust him, he promises to never leave you or forsake you. And he won't. He promises to never again call to mind your sins. And he won't. He promises to not leave you in the grave. But promises instead to raise you to eternal life and usher you into a great paradise of God. Friends, let me just now, um, five past seven, let me finish by summarising what we've discovered today. When we approach God, we know him to be the one who, from whom all things come. He gives generously, knowing all our needs. When he gives, he gives heartily. He is the one true God who's able to deliver us and establish us forever under his sovereign lordship. And he makes great promises, which coming from a God who is all truth, can be fully relied on. He is a faithful God, and each of us can approach him in prayer with the same confidence that David had. Amen. Amen. Amen.